0: Father, we thank you for the truth that has been proclaimed through these songs. We thank you, Lord, for the desire to understand and to uh, walk in the ways that you have laid out for us as believers, Lord, that you have granted brand new desires after coming to Christ. We thank you also that your word is continuing to go forth, Father, in your grace and mercy, enduring with this wicked world to proclaim the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to yet the distant corners of unreached people groups in this world today, even in our own land. We thank you, Lord, that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead through conversion, through redemption, through the born-again experience of the new believer dwells inside of us, quickening us, Lord Jesus, and transforming us from the inside out. We thank you that the message of hope in Jesus Christ is the rock solid, foundational, never changing truth that yet echoes forth with power to save even this day. And we thank you for the evidence even in this room today of the power of the gospel of our Lord. There are many who confess the name of Jesus even in here, in this place, who each one whose hearts have been changed are testimony to the miraculous life-changing power to awaken a soul dead in trespasses and sins unto new life in Christ. Lord, encourage us by the power of your gospel this day as we seek to understand more in light of it as a result of studying the epistle of Peter. We thank you for your apostles that you equipped to proclaim, to interpret, and to apply the holy scriptures and the holy gospel. We pray, Lord, this day as we open up a new book that you would guide our study through it and that you would reinforce our understanding of your truth and that you would equip us, Lord, to do the same, to testify to Christ and his lordship as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. As the Lord gathers us together to lift him up today, we do so in proclaiming his truth from 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, or verses 1 through 5 would you turn in your scriptures there with me today? And thus begins a new communion series for us. First Sunday of the month, we it is our tradition here to celebrate the Lord's table, or communion. And so over the years, I've had a series distinct to our communion services, our communion Sundays. We just finished going through the book of Galatians, and now we We'll uh, launch into a series on First and Second Peter to correspond to our Communion Sundays. So today, Lord willing, will be the first uh, installment in that regard. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the identity of the believer to the praise of our triune God. Who are we as believers? Who are the saints, members of the household of God? What is a Christian? What is different about somebody who is born again? These questions are answered in apostolic, with apostolic authority in 1 Peter 1, 1-5 and through the course of the book, but not just the answer of our own identity as the elect, the saved ones of the Lord is proclaimed, but also this is proclaimed for a purpose, to bring glory to the Lord. And even more specific than that, we have the reference to the Trinity today in our study, proclaiming the identity of the believer to the praise of our triune God. The title of this morning's message is also a name that Peter gives us as believers, elect exiles, elect exiles. It is to the elect exiles that Peter addresses his first epistle. With that introduction, would you stand with me out of reverence for the word of God? And behold, in your hearing today, as the word of the Lord is proclaimed, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 5. Here we have the infallible word of the Lord, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Verse 1 of Peter's first epistle to converts across the Roman Empire identifies three things. It's just verse 1. First of all, his credentials. Peter is an apostle. Secondly, the nature of his audience. They are elect exiles. Thirdly, the area, geographical location in which they lived. We have this list, Pontius, Galatia, and so forth. As to his qualifications and office, you know, who is, who gives the author of 1 Peter the authority to speak in such a way? He simply introduces himself, Peter does, as Peter, quote, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, close quote. He doesn't go into great lengths at this moment asserting his leadership position in the church. Not only does he not sense the need to pull rank, as it were, but he prefers to draw attention to the like faith of all true believers. He begs, yes, he invites his readers to marvel at the riches of the gospel of grace. In 2 Peter, the letter opens in a similar manner. In the second letter, he is more emphatic still as to the shared experience of all true believers, from apostle, yes, even eyewitnesses of the glory of Jesus Christ to brand new converts in distant Gentile pagan lands, as he writes. Notice 2 Peter 1.1, a similar introduction. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there again, Peter identifies himself as a servant, yes, or as an apostle, yes, and a servant, but he also identifies his hearers as those who share the same fundamental difference that has taken place on the inside as he has. The faith that the distant believers who are suffering persecution in Galatia, Pontius, these northern regions of Asia Minor, the faith that they had, even though they didn't have the historical pedigree of growing up in in a Hebrew community, even though they didn't have the rich uh, multi-lineage tradition of the scriptures handed down to them. Even though they were first generation, presumably believers, who had confessed their sin, placed faith in Christ upon the word of a missionary from Jerusalem going to their location. Nevertheless, the riches that were deposited in their heart upon their conversion were of like faith and equal standing with even the apostles as important as Peter was. And this was by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the power and the value of the gospel. It can unify a poor pagan who hasn't heard a word of truth virtually his entire life, suddenly springing to life out of the fallow ground of a distant, godless, idolatrous region. It can unite that individual with someone who has stood in a multi-generational lineage of faithfulness to Jesus Christ and shines forth to the glory of His name by a good, understanding, thoroughgoing theological grasp of the gospel. There is fundamental unity between all true believers, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter identifies his readers as elect exiles. This is a weighty term. This term is strong enough to bear these couple ideas. First, the sovereign grace of salvation. We are elect, elect because God has saved us by His sovereign grace. But also, this term is strong enough to bear a unique calling of the Christian requiring resolve and endurance. We are elect as we are chosen by a personal and mighty God, but we are also exiles. As far as our election is concerned, we see in this one word or this phrase, elect exiles, God has ordained for himself a people who would be ransomed to the praise of his glory by a personal and mighty act invading history and our own hearts, such that we are proven chosen in the mystery of his merciful counsel, from eternity past. This is what it means to be the elect. More than this, we are exiles. In that, our new identity in Christ, our new identity as a Christian, as a believer, is so radically set apart from the ordinary state of fallen man that we find our experience to be one of a sojourner or a citizen of a holy and independent nation. Again to reinforce this idea, chapter 2 of 1st Peter adds some parallels and shades of understanding. This is one of my favorite passages in 1st Peter 2:9. Peter declares, the apostle states as to your identity, believer, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The difference between the average Cappadocian citizen and a new believer to whom Peter writes is the difference between darkness and light. It's the difference between citizen of nation over here that worships idols and nation over here that is gathered from every tribe and region across the expanse of the earth unto the praise of his great name and the reconstitution of a nation in the new heavens and new earth in purity and perfection. A people for his own possession. Why? To proclaim his excellencies, to shine forth. Furthermore, he says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners. Young people, what's the definition of a sojourner? Anybody under the age of 10? Can you tell me what it's? Ah, oh, yeah. Good job, Theo. Traveler. A sojourner is a traveler. He is somebody who's visiting, he's somebody who is a stranger to some degree. This is the way the Apostle Peter describes our state in this fallen world. We are sojourners and exiles. And as such, we are called, in verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our soul. Elect exiles. Finally, reveals what geographical and national regions these exiles are estranged in. And here we have this list, 1 Peter 1.1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Where are these places? Well, history records that these are all territories to the north of Asia Minor Minor or modern Turkey. So think of a map in your head where Turkey is situated today, kind of north and a bit east of the Mediterranean, and then on the northern portions, even bordering the Black Sea, I believe, up there. That's where you would find these people groups. Uh, All of these regions were adjacent to one another, and they constituted that area to the north of Asia Minor. And there is a tie-in to our last series in Galatia, is there not? This is another letter that is written to the Galatians, not just to them, but to others. But Peter addresses his letter to, nevertheless, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All regions to the north of Asia Minor, or modern Turkey, as I've mentioned, the gospel, this was proof that the gospel was dispersing quickly through the Roman regions to the known world, and with it came the apostolic letters of faith, strengthening, encouragement, even 1 Peter, for the early church. And why are we reading these words today? It is in part because these treasured epistles were proclaimed and preserved through the ages, even to our hands today. God, in His providence, by His sovereign direction, preserved His word so that we, in a distant land ourselves, across Lake Minnesota in America in 2019, might hear words that are eternally relevant to the fortification of our faith in a distant land. And so we can relate to this idea of an elect exile, called to be a stranger in this world, called to a purpose yet on the horizon, and called by the sovereign work of grace alone, which has changed our heart according to the gospel message of faith in Christ Jesus and His death to save us from our sin. So that is an introduction to 1 Peter. Let me give you a heading, four points. A heading this morning, descriptive terms applied to believers. Or you could say, elect I exiles are those, or are, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So there's four descriptive terms in verse 2 of 1 Peter 1. The first is, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The second is, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The third is for obedience to Jesus Christ. And the fourth is for sprinkling with His blood. Again, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood. Now, each one of those phrases has a connecting statement or a connecting word or two. The first phrase, foreknowledge of God the Father, is introduced with according to. The second phrase is in a preposition. The third is for obedience to Jesus Christ. And the fourth is also for sprinkling with his blood. Now, each one of these connecting words approves that these statements are a modification of elect exiles. In other words, elect exiles are those according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So do you follow Peter's statement here? Those who are elect exiles are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Those who are true believers, elect exiles, those who are the faithful, they are so in sanctification of the Spirit, they are elect exiles furthermore for obedience to Jesus Christ, and they are elect exiles for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter gives us our outline for this message today in laying out these four descriptive terms. So my contention or my thesis will be that through parallels, through the gospel, he expands on each of these, or through his letter, he expands on each of these, and also they are with reference to the greater body of Scripture, and we'll seek to touch on a few of these points of context. First of all, a descriptive term applying to elect exiles. Elect exiles are those according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. First, we recognize in these four statements that the first three acknowledge the Trinity itself. Can someone give me a definition of the Trinity? The Trinity is God in, young people, God in three persons. That's correct. Young people, can you tell me the persons of the Trinity? First, we have God the Father. That is correct. We have God the Father, God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. The three persons of the Trinity are acknowledged in the first three statements. For instance, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, what is implied, what is implicit, what is presumed in this statement is the covenant of redemption, what has come to be known in theology as the covenant of redemption. What is the covenant of redemption? The covenant of redemption is the coordination of the Godhead, wherein the persons of the Trinity take on in their respective roles, uh, and by solemn agreement, the, uh, the, uh, what is necessary for our salvation. In other words, each of the persons of the Trinity are necessary for salvation, and each serves a particular role. In short, it is God the Father who plans it is God the Son who accomplishes and God the Spirit who applies. Basic theology on the nature of our triune God. Now this is acknowledged right here in our text today. Some might argue with you that the Trinity is not an explicitly biblical concept. 1 Peter 1, 1-5 proves them false. The Trinity is an explicitly biblical concept, though that word may not appear as such. It is the terminology that refers in shorthand to exactly these types of passages of Scripture, which recognize the glories of God in the salvation of His people. Ours is a Trinitarian redemption. Ours is a redemption that was accomplished by the unique God, God in three persons. And as such, God is glorified in recognizing the intricacies and the beauty of His plan accomplished in time. We glorify God the Father in recognizing that our salvation and our status as elect exiles now called forth from our sin. We we glorify God in recognizing that this was according to the foreknowledge or the planning of God the Father. What does foreknowledge mean? Peter would have his readers consider knowledge with respect to God in context of his entire letter as well as the full revelation of scripture, which presents us with the truth that God cannot by nature learn or acquire knowledge or passively observe things, but by his very essence, the idea of God's knowledge is limited in this sense. God's knowledge applies to him in as far as his knowledge is absolutely determinative. Now that sounds like a run-on sentence that better suited for a college course. But let me try to illustrate different kinds of knowledge in this way. Um, Here's a college story for you. My kids will perk up. They always beg me to tell college stories. My dad's here today, and I must admit that a lot of my college experiences were inspired by his stories. So as a generational commitment to have something interesting to share with my kids, I tended to get myself, well, in complicated situations, shall we say, from time to time, (laughs) One complicated situation that happened in college was on a very cold night. The temperature today was probably about the coldest night you'd find in Dallas, Texas. You know, I don't know, in the 20s, maybe 30. And one of those nights had fallen upon us in the middle of a Dallas winter. And we had a knock on the door and they said, hey, just a heads up. It was an informant. There's going to be a fire alarm pulled late in the evening. And you got to recognize our dorm, dormitory was 10 stories tall. And each level, you know, it's just full of guys. And whenever there was a fire alarm, everybody thought it was really impressive to get outside as absolutely as fast as you can, and you would basically have a parking lot full of guys and their boxers, and uh, because they thought it was kind of funny, and so forth. But the reason this fire alarm was called is because there had been certain individuals who were lighting off firecrackers, breaking some of the rules, and causing some general mischief in our complex. So the RAs, you know, the people in charge of the dorms, they thought of a of a plan. They came up with this idea. We're going to pull the fire alarm, get everybody in the parking lot. It's going to be freezing cold, and we're going to say we're not going to let anybody back inside until they admit, the perpetrators admit to firing off these fireworks and so forth. Well, we got a knock on the door and someone gave us a tip. We had a tip from the inside, although we might have been involved directly or indirectly with some of the shooting of those fireworks. We had an informant that told us tonight there's going to be a fire drill. They're not going to let you guys back in until somebody confesses. So I suggest wearing the appropriate attire. And so sure enough, three in the morning, you know, ring, 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 and just racing footsteps down the stairwells. And we're bundled up and everything. We got our coats and our blankets and everything with us. And, all, and unbeknownst to them, all of uh, everybody else in the dormitory is outside in their boxer briefs and so forth. So we all get out there, and sure enough, they say, we're not letting you guys back in you know, until someone confesses. And so, of course, we're there bundled up in our blankets. We're like, just confess, all righty. We want to go back inside. So anyways, end the story there. In this story, there's three levels of knowledge, believe it or not. Number one, planned knowledge. The RAs had planned for this event to take place. Number two, communicated knowledge. There was a knock on our door that said, tonight there's going to be a fire drill. Number three, experience knowledge. All of those who became aware of this as it was happening to them. Okay, so you got it. Planned knowledge, communicated knowledge, and the knowledge of a victim in this situation. So what kind of knowledge do you suppose God has? Is it planned knowledge? Is it knowledge communicated to him? Or is it knowledge gained from him experiencing something that he was previously unaware of? Which kind of knowledge is unique to God? Planned, communicated, or experienced? Any answers? Planned. Planned. That is correct. The foreknowledge of God, because of who he is, is planned knowledge exclusively. God cannot have anything communicated to him that he doesn't already know. He is omniscient. He knows all. He is God after all. God is never surprised. He never learns anything as such. God never experiences something that he was previously unaware of. God's knowledge is planned knowledge. Is this helpful? Yes, it is. Because now we go back to our text and we find that God's knowledge is such that he, that we, according to his foreknowledge, have become elect exiles. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Paul picks up on this same notion in the golden chain of redemption. A favorite passage of scripture. Romans 8:28 is that often memorized text, he works all things together for the good of those who are or for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. The next verse is this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to conform to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God's knowledge is such that he has planned from eternity past to effect redemption and salvation in your heart. And then the second kind of knowledge, there was a day when that knowledge was communicated to you. Just like the story in my college days of a day of reckoning where we stand out in the cold, there is the knowledge of a day of reckoning that is communicated in the gospel And as the unbeliever hears this message of truth, God's plan to save a people communicated to them, now they, as the Spirit awakens their heart, respond accordingly, and suddenly something happens to them. The knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord is awakened in their heart. Where they were once dead, they are now alive. We are the uh, patient, as it were. We are the one whose experience... Uh, We have experienced the knowledge by communication and experience, but God is the one who has foreordained, foreknown, and planned from eternity past to accomplish His will. This case is made stronger in 1 Peter as we continue to read. Notice in verse 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy.'" So once again, first person of the Trinity, God the Father. "'Blessings are to be offered to Him.'" He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, second person of the Trinity. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you see, the planning of God beforehand has been instrumental, and that information has come to us by way of the gospel and caused us to be resurrected with Christ, caused us to be regenerated, caused us to be born again. 1 Peter 1.20, this concept of foreknowledge is spoken of with reference to Christ himself. It says in verse 20, "...He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake." In what sense was Christ foreknown before the foundation of the world? The same way that our salvation, or we were foreknown... Christ coming into the world was foreplanned, if you will. It was foredecided, if you will, in eternity past for God to accomplish his will. And then, as the history unfolds, carrying out the decree of our great God, when the fullness of time came, when the last times welcomed Christ, he who was foreknown before the foundation of the world was made manifest in the flesh. So we see. This descriptive term applies to believers. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge, the foreplanning, the uh, or the before planning if you will, of God the Father. In the same way that he sovereignly ordained that Jesus enter into this realm and be crucified for us, so he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Thus the causal force in our lives as believers is the predestination. It's the foreknowledge of our great God. Second de- descriptive term, elect exiles, are those, or we are elect exiles, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Again, verse two, Peter is addressing his God or his letter, his epistle to these distant regions where new believers are now coming to the faith, and as he writes to those in Pontius, Galatia, and so forth, he says that they are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. So what member of the Trinity, what person of the Trinity is referenced in point number two, young people? Which uh, person of the Trinity do we find in this phrase? In the sanctification of the Spirit. Which member of the Trinity? Is it God the Father Is it God the Son or God the Spirit that's referenced here? God the Spirit, that's right. Sanctification and the Spirit of God are associated with elect exiles, a descriptive term that applies to us. Again, we recognize Trinitarian redemption. The Spirit's role in salvation is to sanctify, if you will. It is to apply the gospel to our hearts. This idea of sanctification can be uh, very broad, and it's always qualified by the context. But think across the landscape of Scripture to to what it means to be sanctified. It includes these ideas, sacred, holy, set apart, anointed for a particular use, or purified over time. These are all ideas that are associated with this term, sanctification. Matthew Poole sums up the introduction of 1 Peter this way. He says... And so the sense of the whole is, elect according to the foreknowledge of God to be, the, to be by the sanctification of the Spirit, brought into the participation of all benefits of Christ's redemption, the sum of which consists in the renovation of your natures unto gospel obedience and the justification of your persons. There's a lot packed in to these four brief phrases, is there not? It includes this idea That we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God and that that truth of the gospel is applied to our hearts by the sanctification of the Spirit, brought into participation with all the benefits of Christ's redemption, the washing away of our sins, the justification that comes as a result, and then the continued sanctification, changing of our lives into His image, the sum of which consists, Poole says, in the renovation of your natures unto gospel obedience and the justification of your persons." Now, there are parallels right here in the text that expound this idea. As we continue to read in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Sanctification can also be described as a living hope. When the Spirit comes and invades the life, the heart of a believer, there is now a hope alive in their soul that previously was not there. There is a fundamental change that has occurred in our hearts, in our being, in our nature that now causes uh, profound changes. Our desires begin to shift. Conviction of sin becomes a reality. The hope of eternity and the promises of salvation now motivate us more than the hope of personal, vain, idolatrous ambition used to motivate us in the old when we lived only according to the old man we are now invested with a living hope on the inside evidence of the spirit's indwelling he leads us into truth to understand his scriptures he comfort us comforts us through the depths of the valley of the shadow of death he instructs us in the way that we should walk he conforms our affections to that which god has purposed loved and ordained for us to walk in even Holy Ghost and increasingly law-keeping as we are sanctified according to the Spirit. The Spirit is referenced later on uh, or or throughout the text as the third person of the Trinity and his role in redemption is expounded by the Apostle. Notice in 118, Knowing this, that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Peter is writing to people that were ransomed from a lifestyle and from a history, from a culture, from an experience that was wicked, that was uh, fraught with all of the common idolatry and vices and wickedness and depravity that we see yet in our world today. But this power to pull them away from the uh, giant suffocating influence of an idolatrous culture was due to the fact that a more powerful force was living in them still, and that was the power of the Spirit. This power of the Spirit was a living hope. It was the third person of the Trinity, in fact, and it had the power to ransom them from the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. As we see in the testimony of Acts in Ephesus, for instance, which would be a region not too far from where this letter went, the feudal ways of their forefathers were the worship and the economy, the commerce that surrounded the goddess Diana or Artemis. So there was this famous idol and this famous god and depiction of the same in Ephesus, and tourists would come to see this monument, this statue, pay their respects to Diana. And so, of course, all the silversmiths would carve little images, and people would buy tokens, trinkets, souvenirs, or idols, or whatever. They considered these things, you know, to remember their trip to Ephesus by. Well, suddenly the Holy Spirit visits and invades hearts in Ephesus such that the silversmith guild, you know, the, uh, the union of silversmiths that exists to promote their trade is in a tizzy. They're upset beyond belief because they see that their very livelihood is threatened. Why? Because there were people in Ephesus that were now ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. And they're willing to take such a step that even their economic livelihood would potentially be sacrificed in order that they follow Christ and serve Him now and no longer create statues to the goddess Diana. This is the sanctification power of the Holy Spirit at work and real-world examples through the course of Scripture. There are other parallels in scriptures as well. Let me, in the greater scriptures as well, let me turn you to one. In Exodus 29, Exodus 29. if you would turn there briefly with me, if you would. The apostles, to a man, had in the back of their mind the Scriptures as they knew them, namely, God's Word from the Old Testament. And so many times there are parallels, if not direct references, to the Old Covenant Scriptures. Underneath this idea of sanctification uh, or consecration, sacred, set-apart, holy, or being purified over time, we have references like this from the history of redemption, Exodus 29, 21. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So you see here in this symbolic imagery, Blood is the instrument of purification or the instrument of sanctification. That which was sprinkled by the blood of this sacrifice would be set apart, would be holy. More on that in the context as we continue to read. After all, Jesus, Christ, or we are elect exiles for sprinkling with His blood, as Peter recognizes in verse 2. So there's two descriptive terms applied to believers. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and we are elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. And This brings up point three this morning, we are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ. Again, verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, as we mentioned, is the one who accomplished Our redemption. He took on the form of a servant, as Paul says in Philippians 2, was born of a virgin Mary, satisfied everything that was necessary to purchase our hope of eternal life, was crucified on that tree on Calvary, was raised from the dead on the third day, and was ascended before the right hand of the Father. And Daniel 7 prophesies of this ascension moment and its ascension unto something its ascension unto a throne. As he ascends before the ancient of days, he is given the rewards of his suffering. He is given the benefit, if you will, the blessing of the covenant of redemption. In other words, as a compensation or reward, if you will, for Jesus satisfying, taking on the sin of man, dying in our place, and taking dominion over sin, death, and the grave, and the devil, in that act of Calvary, there was a reward for his sufferings that was granted unto him. And that reward was kingship. That reward was lordship. That was a forever ruling and reigning position we call his session before the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Do not underestimate in your concept of the fullness of the work of Christ the meaning and the significance of his ascension unto the place of his ruling and reigning, because if you do miss that element, if it's underemphasized in our theology, our concept of the gospel, then obedience to Jesus Christ will ring a little hollow. Why do we obey Jesus? Because he is our king. Think of a king and the obedience that he demands. Obedience is a way that you show respect and honor for a king. If someone is your peer, you can honor them and respect them without necessarily obeying them. You can just be cordial or you can enjoy their friendship. You can spend long time, uh, long times together, but depending on your relationship with someone else, their status in order to honor them, if they are a superior over you will require something different. Up here, in order to honor them, you can be cordial and loving as a friend, but someone who is your king in order to honor them, you must submit, you must follow you must obey, you must hold as meaningful and authoritative his word and his law. And this is something that we do as saved believers, as elect exiles, out of love and appreciation and devotion. Think of those stories you might have read in your younger years, or young people, maybe you're reading some of them now, of the great acts of chivalry, where knights in shining armor went to vanquish their foes. A knight was usually one under the authority of a lord or a king or say a queen of a realm or a land. And in the, best, uh, in, in the best stories of healthy relationship in the hierarchy of that realm, you would have an honorable king whose law was true and just and who would commission his servants for the good of the people and for his glory and namesake to go conquer in the name of the king. And so a dutiful knight would honor his king by willingness to risk his life in battle. These stories stir something in our hearts. There's a reason why stories of chivalry and knights in shining armor, vanquishing foes, you know, are still compelling even today. The reason is, is because the relationship of God to us fundamentally is one of hierarchy, lordship, kingship. Jesus is our king. We must recognize as much and walk in obedience to him. He's not a king in the domineering, autocratic or a sense of what we imagine you know, some despot would be, some dictator would be, but no, our king stooped low. He laid down his own life for us. In his sacrificial self-giving that we've studied recently in Ephesians 5, he was killed for the sake of his bride. If someone has died in your place, if someone has set aside his pre-incarnate glory, if someone has veiled for a time his authority and lordship to do this, to make himself of low estate, to accomplish your very salvation, how much more ought we serve that king when he has then ascended to receive his glory once again? And even more, if it could be said, as he has conquered death, the grave, and our sin. We are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ. He is our monarch. He is our king. And we should recognize as much. As the, you know, Peter continues to unfold in his gospel, the implications of this, notice 121. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, if we back up to verse 19, we get the fuller context. So Christ bought us with, or we were bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. When Christ was raised from the dead, he was vested, he was given, he was Uh, the conferred glory from God the Father. And that glory, the fact that he is king, the fact that he rules and reigns, the fact that he is ascended is the ground, it is the root, is the foundation of our faith and hope in God. He has been raised from the dead. He has been glorified. And we, as his loyal subjects, ought to recognize as much to serve him in light of this and to give glory to his holy name as we obey him. Romans 1:5 we won't turn there this morning. It's a thesis statement, it's a purpose statement for the book that is reiterated at the end. Why is Paul writing? He tells you. He says, "I am writing for the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among the nations." Obedience of the faith. Paul is writing to influence people to be loyal subjects to their king Jesus Christ. Why do we do this? to bring glory to the name of Jesus, who conquered death and was exalted and given that glorious state, featured position for the right hand of the Father. And where are we to do this? We are to do this among the nations. Yes, even Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so the context is paralleled by other authors of scripture as well. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ. Final point this morning, we are elect exiles for sprinkling with His blood. Once again, verse 2, at this rate, we'll have it memorized before the message is done. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. What could this mean for sprinkling with his blood? All throughout Scripture, the concept of blood and atonement are related. The idea of the blood as a necessary element in atonement goes is an ancient uh, is an ancient revelation going way back to the earliest pages of the Old Testament. In the shedding of blood, we have a substitute sacrifice pictured through the Levitical order, and even before. In the shedding of blood, we have an agent of cleansing, even as we've read from Exodus a bit, 29, 21, as this agent of blood symbolized this setting apart, making sacred, sanctifying, or cleansing the garments or the office of Aaron, the high priest. In the shedding of blood, we have pardon. We are released from the obligation of our sins Because what was representative of old in the scapegoat is a reality. You remember, one goat was killed, the other, the sins were transmitted to it as it were in that symbolic act as the priest grabbed the head of that goat and then sent it away. In these pictures, the shedding of blood is associated with atonement, which means a covering over of our sins, a necessary substitute sacrifice in our place. And so this is what's behind this phrase, that we are elect exiles for sprinkling with his blood. If we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, so to speak, then these realities become ours, not just, not symbolically, but substantially. In the sprinkling of Jesus' blood, that is the application of Jesus' blood to our sin, we have received the sacrifice, the substitute who is killed in our place and the application, spiritually speaking, of Christ's blood to us, the sprinkling of his blood on us, we are cleansed from the impurity of our sins and given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are given, granted pardon. We are released from the obligation that God's justice demand, demanded of punishment for all who fall short of the glory of God. Turn to Exodus 24 one more time. To see a bit of this pictured again in the old covenant? The law has just been read to, to the ears in the ears of the people of God. Moses has declared with authority the message of truth from a holy and righteous God to a sinful people. And now they stand with their sins laid bare before this measure, this standard of righteousness. And so where is their hope to be found? They, as sinners, quaking before a mighty and holy God. Exodus 24, 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took, verse 6, half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood and threw, he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So you see here, the sprinkling of the blood in this ceremony symbolized the inclusion of the people of God into covenant relationship with the Almighty. If they realized in faith what was pictured before them, then they would be commended by that faith. And they would be saved by the Messiah yet to come. That sprinkled blood of this atoning and symbolic sacrifice in Exodus 24 spoke of a blood sprinkling yet to come. And that blood sprinkling is that of our Lord and Savior, the true and sufficient substitute sacrifice, the once and for all Passover lamb crucified in our place, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are elect exiles for sprinkling with his blood. In other words... By the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, and by believing this in faith, confessing our sins and trusting in him, the blood of Christ, as it were, has been sprinkled upon us and has bound us in covenant to him. And that blood now certifies that our sins are atoned for, that we are pure in his presence, that we have received pardon for the judgment that we deserved. This is what it means to be an elect exile. Now, this is pictured before us at the Lord's table. As we close and transition at the end of this message, how fitting is it to have the communion elements laid before us? Young people, let me ask you once again, as is my habit to do on Sunday, communion Sundays, can you tell me what the cup represents? What is? That's correct. And what does the bread remind us of? That is correct. The cup represents Jesus' blood. The bread represents the body of Christ. And why are these elements so meaningful? Because as the author of Hebrews has told us, and Peter has echoed, and Moses affirmed, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Our sins yet condemn us until we are, as it were, sprinkled with the blood of Christ that is included in covenant relationship with him, whereby through faith, we confess our sins and place faith that his blood was shed for us. This is the gospel. The Lord's table symbolizes the grace and peace that is multiplied to us in his body and blood. The last phrase of 1 Peter 1:2: may grace and peace be multiplied to you. At this meal before us, at the table of the Lord, as we partake of these elements, we remember that grace and peace has been multiplied, meaning it has been abundantly supplied above what we could ever imagine unto gifts and promises that we have yet to receive in glory. We have grace. We have the covering, even though our sins deserved uh, the, ju- the judgment of a holy God, we have grace in that we have received pardon that we did not deserve. And we have received peace that is a restored relationship that we are no longer the enemies of God but are friends with Him. Yes, even grafted in as saints, members of the household of God. Yes, even in family relationship through adoption as brothers and sisters of Christ as it were, as children of the Father God. This is the reality of the peace and the extent that we have experienced in the sprinkling of Christ's own blood. I beg you to remember these things as you, as, as believers in this room, approach the table in moments, let us pray and transition. Father, we thank you for the message of truth in your holy scriptures. We thank you for the power of the gospel, as sharp and as two-edged and as effective as the day that it was written and declared by you, Lord, even to our souls, our hearts, this day. We thank you for the means that you have provided for us to revisit the very ground of our salvation, the very work of Calvary that secured our hope eternal. I pray, Lord, as we consume these elements today, that we would see ourselves grafted in, that we would see ourselves in covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, that the shedding of His blood would be our eternal hope, and that we would be reminded and proclaim as much through this table this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your holy word. We thank you for the Spirit who applies it to our hearts. We thank you for the plan, the decree of our great God and Father who has ordained all of this. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, King, and Lord who is crucified in our place. May he be glorified in our service this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.